Thank you for downloading the Sunday Sermon from Sunday, December 15th. As Bill Moberly shares, finding our place in the Father's business. For more information about Paragon Church, please visit paragonchurch.com. It's, uh, I've been worshiping here for a while. I think if, if you see Charlie running around up front or John Nicole, John's uh, our third son. We have five sons, two daughters. I couldn't win the ugly sweater contest today because I don't have one, but I could win the ugly hat contest. I thought this might be a little over the top if you had to hear this the whole morning. So, Would this be a little too much? It lights up too. So, so I probably won't uh, power that up today. But uh, as, uh, as, as Matt was saying, uh, yeah, there's a Vietnam missions meeting a little later. And it's a privilege to share the word with you this morning. I want to set a context for all of that a little bit. You know, it's, uh, what, just 10 days till Christmas. So that's pretty amazing. Uh, kind of a strange time to maybe be thinking about global missions. But really, it's not when you stop and think about it. Let me say three things. Maybe it was a month or so ago, Matt, when uh, one of the last times we were here before I was in southern Illinois last week. But uh, talked about Josiah and Hezekiah and the power of legacy. This is a test. How many remember that? You know, the power of legacy is, is what it means to pass the gospel on from generation to generation. And so one part of the context for this morning, and even having a meeting talking about Vietnam a little bit later, is the idea that this morning as we gather worshiping King Jesus and looking forward to his birthday and also Advent this season is looking forward to Jesus' return, you know that more than... Uh, Three billion people live in unreached people groups and are in countries where the gospel is virtually non-existent. The Lottie Moon offering this month that uh, Southern Baptist Church does is founded on the whole idea that there's tongues and tribes and peoples and languages that need to hear the gospel. As we sit here this morning, there's more than 7,000 unreached people groups. Half of those, and that means people distinct by their language, their culture, their ethnic heritage, and geography, right? Makes sense. The language they speak, the culture, the way they live together, their ethnicity and geography. When you factor those four together, there's more than 16,000 people groups on the face of the planet. More than 7,000 don't have the gospel or less than 2% of the people are, are believers. Half of those, more than 3,500, don't even have a missionary or mission agency or any known group that's reaching out trying to take the gospel to them. So as we sit here this morning, looking forward to Jesus' return, we need to be reminded that there's still work to be done. And that's why we're talking global missions in the midst of Christmas. And of course, right in the midst of the Christmas season, we're remembering too that Jesus, and, and I don't know if you know, I've been here all four Sundays or you know, the Sundays leading up here, if you, one of the prophetic words in Isaiah talking about Jesus' return and talking about Jesus' meaning in the grand scheme of God's plan is that he was, this, uh, he was a light for the Gentiles. God's purpose always was to introduce Jesus through his people, the Jews, and then share that message uh, with the world. So the agency that I founded uh, 12 years ago, I've been pastoring for 40 years, started in youth ministry 42 years ago. I'm only 45, so I haven't figured out how that happened yet. You feel like you're 45, and then when you realize you've got kids that are the same age, that doesn't work right anymore. But... Uh, uh, God is at work, and the purpose of our mission, our primary purpose is I work with churches across the U.S. to help them to become more 
meaningfully and intentionally and purposefully grounded in obeying the Great Commission because Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples of all the nations. So what I want to talk to you this morning about, and I think it's, uh, are we up there? There we go. You know, we don't use pews. That's kind of old school. I was in one of the oldest churches in Illinois last week. It was founded in 1858. So I get in some old churches and new ones. There are newer churches like this. And one of the churches I pastored, we had chairs. But the idea is to get out there and do the work. I like to talk about it this way. It's finding and taking your place in the family business. When I was an internship in Wisconsin, when I was at seminary 35 years ago, uh, John was, uh, you were just a baby. You're a year old. And uh, farming community, and one of the young guys I got to know in the church, uh, his father was, uh, had passed away unexpectedly about my age. He was in his mid-60s, he passed away. So here he was, 30 years old, doing the farm on his own because he'd grown up figuring he'd work the farm and take it over from his dad someday, and then dad died young. So I used to go out just thinking it was fun to muck the calf pen and uh, shovel manure and do some of those things that were his job. I just thought it was fun because it wasn't what I got to do most of the time. And a generation ago, or maybe a couple of generations ago, it was pretty common to grow up and, and uh, maybe do what your mom did. If mom was a homemaker, she'd teach you to bake and teach you to cook, and, and you'd find uh, maybe that was part of your path for your future. That's, of course, a long time ago. And, uh, and for guys, you'd grow up, if dad was a farmer, maybe that's what you'd be. Or if dad was a mechanic, maybe that's what you'd be. We don't do that so much anymore in our own day. But I want to say this, that Jesus commanded us to take the gospel to the nations, and because we're his sons and daughters, we're part of the family, God commands us to take the gospel to the nations. Is it moving? There we go. Yeah, it is. Here, part of the context, too, is the day we live in, we're talking about uh, the Great Commission. Here, uh, George Barna is a... Uh, uh, he, Surveyor, you know, some of the political uh, surveys we see are from the Rasmussen Group and Gallup Poll. In the Christian world, Barna Research does a lot of surveys, and here's one that came out just last spring, so spring of 18. Pretty sobering when you think about it. The question was asked across denominational lines of people who are church attenders. We're not talking about people who never go to church or simply say, yeah, that's my church, and they go Christmas and Easter. We're talking about people who are regularly uh, going to worship, He said, do you know what the Great Commission is? Look at the results of this. Pretty amazing. 51% said, no, never heard of it. Another uh, 25% said, I've heard of it somewhere, but I don't know what it means. It's only 17%. That's less than one out of five said, oh, yeah. The Great Commission means Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples of all the nations. So we need to talk about God's call to the nations precisely because it's getting lost even in our own time. In fact, one of the themes I've really appreciated the Sundays I'm here hearing, hearing your pastor talk about as well is uh, you know, it's so easy to conflate the American dream with what it means to be a Christian. And we have a lot of freedom here, and that's awesome. But we live in a day where uh, it's getting confused what it means to be a follower of Christ. And that's why I want to say five simple things and talk a little bit about Vietnam, but say, say things related to missions. So let's move on here. First, the Christian life is a walk. That's what discipleship is about. Not reminding you anything you don't know. I love the core values that, uh, that Paragon reflects. Christian life is not defined by what we do when we come here for an hour on Sunday morning. You know, when I started youth ministry 35, well, 42 years ago, man, that was a long time ago. 
a lot of the churches I served, the norm in those days for people who are committed in their church was to be in church every Sunday or most Sundays. And if you came to church, it was coming to church and coming to Sunday school. Adults would go to Sunday school, kids would go to Sunday school, and you're in church. So the idea of giving three hours or two and a half hours on a Sunday morning was the norm. I don't know about you. I don't know what you see. It's not that way many, in many of the places I visit anymore. We've just kind of lost, in many, many places, sense of being a follower of Christ isn't defined by this one hour, but it's the other 167 throughout the course of the week where we get to live as disciples of Christ, shining our light in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our school, wherever we are. Jesus called us to be his disciples, and that means to live out our faith. You know, it's really tragic that uh, in many, many ways, we live in a time where uh, increasingly there's not a big discernible difference between Christians and non-Christians. You look at the divorce rate, it's almost the same between Christians and non-Christians. Uh, if you look in the workplace, if you look at, uh, at how we spend our time or how we live our life or the, maybe the movies we watch or the things we see, Increasingly, there's just not a big difference between the way Christians live and non-Christians live. And I'm not talking about uh, earning our way into heaven because we do the right things. You know, no, uh, don't uh, smoke, drink, or chew and run with those who do. I'm talking about shining our light for Christ and letting our life and our words line up and make a difference. And so Jesus calls us to be his disciples. You know, the earliest, the earliest name for the, for the church was they were people of the way because it was the way of salvation and a way of life to find the way we live, not just what we say we believe in and that we talk about when we come to church for an hour. So the Christian life is a walk. We're to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Secondly, uh, this walk begins with the call of God. God calls us to himself. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. You know, if we could tell the stories this morning together of how God called us to himself, I can tell you my story. You know, I, I grew up in a nominally Christian home. My parents were Methodists who uh, grew up in Minnesota, so we went to church semi-regularly between Labor Day and Memorial Day, but not summers because the weather was so nice in the summer. Of course, you didn't go to church. I was just kind of grew up. That was the norm. So we'd go to the lake in the summer, and then uh, when I was uh, 16, I met my wife. Well, of course, she wasn't my wife then. Um, and, uh, of course, she was beautiful and, and all those things. We met at a school dance, and I think I was in love almost right away, as much as you can be at age 16. Uh, but more than that, she was, a, she was a believer. And so when we were... Just in the, even the first weeks, first months of dating, she'd say, well, now, uh, you going to go to church tomorrow? Well, I'd sometimes say yes, and sometimes we did. And, you know, back in those days, well, I don't want to go into all the reasons I went to church. They weren't all the right ones. But the uh, point is, God used Sally's faith when we were teenagers to open my heart to the gospel. And I remember very clearly... Confessing Christ as my Savior because of the witness that she showed me. 
Now, I don't know what uh, what your calling is, and, the, and often the calling, and I'm talking about when we suddenly, for the first time, understand that Jesus didn't just die for somebody else, but he died for me. And that he really died, he really rose again, and the sin in your life and mine that he wanted to destroy and vanquish and give us victory over and bring forgiveness and reconciliation, that that wasn't just a promise for somebody else, but it was a promise for me. So the God calls us to himself. God calls us to himself. And I love this from uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, when Jesus calls us, he calls us from death to life, from darkness to light, from living for ourselves to living for him. And sometimes it all gets so confused that it's still about living for him when it fits, but not living for him when it's inconvenient. Living for him when we like it, but not living for him when we don't. So Jesus uh, calls us. So it's Christian life. Yes, it's a walk, but it begins with the call of God. You know, um, and it's amazing the way that God works in that. I mean, when I when I look back and see the chance in, uh, of I was walking by a buddy of mine who we'd gone to elementary school together, walked by him at this school dance. He's trying to dance with Sally's best friend, and Sally had come into that dance that night her, her, boy, her boyfriend had come in with another girl, so she thought, that's it, I'm done with him. And, and this buddy of mine, uh, uh, I happened to walk by at the moment he's trying to get Sally's best friend to dance with her. Morberly, come over here. Let me introduce you to somebody. And, uh, you know, a lot of the little things in life that happen are not chance. They're God's working. Uh, Will and... Uh, and Liz, you're reading the story of Billy Graham at home, right? Yeah. You know, you talk about the call of God and our role in that. You know, I'm going to tell you two stories related to that. Uh, you may know Billy Graham was, uh, he was saved when he was 15 or 16. He was at an evangelistic meeting, series of meetings. Mordecai Ham was the preacher. But we don't necessarily know the whole succession. How many of you have ever heard of a guy named Edward Kimball? Ever told that story here? You know, but you probably have. I'll tell it again. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher. Who teaches, uh, who teaches the kids here once in a while? Hey, man, thank you. And the ones that are out doing it right now, well, thank you for what you're doing. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher. He's a 17-year-old boy in his class that uh, just didn't seem to get it. He just didn't seem to understand the gospel. And he felt compelled to to go witness to this boy outside of Sunday school. So he was an apprentice shoemaker. That is, this boy he wanted to witness to. So he stood outside the shop, kind of hem and hawn, should I go in or not? Uh, we don't know if he ever witnessed anybody else, but he walked into that place, talked to Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody, and shared his faith. Moody became a believer, preached to millions of people, thousands of people, rather, at least across many continents. One of the people that came to one of his meetings was... a. Uh, was a man named uh, Dwight Chapman. Dwight Chapman became a believer, became an evangelist. One of the people attending one of his evangelistic crusades was an athlete. A generation or so later, Billy Sunday became converted. He was an ex-athlete, went out to preach. Billy Sunday, as he preached, Mordecai Ham was converted through that. 
The whole succession that brought Billy Graham to Christ began with one Sunday school teacher who walked in and witnessed to one young man. What if he doesn't walk into that store? We talk about finding our place in the Great Commission and connecting to Jesus' call on our life. We need to recognize that we're part of that chain. We're part of that opportunity to share the gospel simply by being obedient in those one thing, in those simple moments where we're asked to, to share our faith. One of my uh, favorite stories of that is a very dear friend of ours who was just here in the U.S. a few weeks ago. Our friend Lydia was in, uh, grew up in Slovakia during the communist time. And uh, she was, uh, of course, not a Christian. It wasn't legal to be Christians. I mean, there were Christians who were meeting in private places. They couldn't meet in public like this in, in those days. If you were caught meeting together, you'd go to jail. So when freedom came to Slovakia in the early 90s, she was in high school, and we were going to have a meeting a little bit later talking about taking a short-term mission trip to Vietnam. Well, there was a short-term team that came to Slovakia when she was in high school, soon after the, the fall of the Soviet Union. That was uh, fall of 89. So by 91, the Soviet Union itself broke up, and uh, Berlin Wall had come down. So Lydia said there was a team that... Uh, uh, was in her community, came to her public school. And she was in her English class. They came to her English class. They couldn't share their faith. So they simply answered questions. I've done that a few times. I remember once we were in Russia back in, uh, what was that, 96, 97? I'm trying to remember when that was. No, maybe even earlier than that. We were in Russia once, and we got to go into an English class, and People knew we were Christians, but they weren't asking us about our faith. They were just asking about life. They wanted to know which TV shows we watch in the U.S. and what life was like here. Well, in the midst of the question and answer that went on with Lydia and this little team, one of the men made a statement that uh, for him, uh, the Bible was a, uh, a guide for living. And I'm, I'm pretty convinced that he probably doesn't even remember saying it. It was kind of a throwaway line and hoping to point people to Jesus, but that was the only phrase. She and three friends walked out of that classroom that day, scratching their heads going, wow, the Bible is a guide for living. I wonder what that means. And they began to open the Bible up because now it was free to be able to go to worship. There weren't many churches. They didn't go to church. They just simply began to read the Word together and trying to figure out what in the world this guy was talking about when he, talked to, when, when he referred to the Bible being a guide for life. And... Uh, they eventually met a Christian who then led them to confess Jesus as their Savior. And of these four friends, three of them are full-time ministry today. But I'll trace it back to one short-term mission team and one guy in one setting who said, the Bible is a guide for life. Remember, 90, probably summer of 92, I was in, uh, in Yugoslavia right as, uh, no, summer of 91. It was right as Yugoslav War started. You know, the, um, and I met a, and we were there doing some church planting, and it's kind of a long story, but uh, we worked with Chin Challenge in Europe, in, and we were in southern part of Yugoslavia, we were in, uh, in Croatia. But I met the founder of Chin Challenge, who was the head of Teen Challenge. You familiar with Teen Challenge, which gets people off of drugs? Well, they were... Uh, they were working in Europe at that point, but the director of Teen Challenge in Europe at that point in 1991 had become a believer three years before because a Norwegian mission team had been in their 
country, standing on a corner singing Christian songs. He heard the songs. He approached the group. He became a believer. My point is that God wants to use your life and mine to be not only answering the call of God, but also issuing that call of God. Let me say the third thing. When we said, so first of all, Christian life is a walk. It begins with the call of God. Third, that uh, God calls us according to his purpose. God has a plan and a purpose for your life and mine. And it's, it's not about accumulating the most money before you die. I mean, it's not a bad thing. You have it to give away. But if that's your goal, is to get involved in the rat race of life and try and win, ever thought about it? If you win the rat race of life, it just means you're the best rat, right? You get caught up in the rat race and you win. Remember, my, my brother passed away about uh, 10 or 11 years ago. As far as I know, up till the moment he died, he never repented and, and came to Christ. Uh, he'd heard a lot of the same things I'd had growing up. I know he was multimillionaire when he died. I remember sitting in his hospital room with him as he was talking to his lawyer and moving this asset around and that asset around. All I know is, and, and uh, oh, it saddens me to say it, I mean, I'm... I'm trusting the grace of God that he cried out to Jesus in the last moments. I know that up till a couple weeks before, I have no clue what happened. He still wasn't reaching out to the Lord at that point. At the end of the day, uh, he died a, a rich man, but he was still died. God calls you and I according to his purpose. He's got a plan and purpose for our life. One of my favorite New Testament passages is from Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, when I used to teach young people and, and have memorized scripture, we used to memorize these passages of scripture when I was doing youth ministry many, many years ago. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 say this, By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. But I love verse 10. And I used to have them memorize this too. Because we're his workmanship, but we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in, walk in them. God has a plan and a purpose for your life and mine, and it's not about just uh, going on our happy way to heaven, thankful that Jesus saved us, and then living our life, carving out a plan for ourselves, and hoping that, yeah, God, come along. I hope you bless. I want to do this. I want to do that. Will you bless that, God? But it's rather finding God's plan and purpose for life. When I went to college, I thought I was going to be a math teacher. That was my plan. I skipped my senior year of high school. I was a Math problem, math prodigy, but I love math. So I went off to college thinking I would teach math at the college level. God intervened and had a different plan and purpose for our life. And even now, at this point, we've, my wife and I have been in global missions full-time the last 15, off and on going back to 91, pastor churches for a number of years. And when we were in California in 2000, late 2003, pastor at a church, John was uh, just out of Marine Corps. He was working with the youth in our church. My son Joe attends here. He was thinking about full-time ministry. He wasn't sure if that would be God's plan. Yeah, well, that's your dad. Uh, and Joe was thinking about full-time ministry at that point, so he was helping out a little bit at our church. And uh, so it was pretty cool. We're living in California. The church was had, uh, doubled in size in our three years there. And I get to work on, you know, work on the staff with two of my sons and, I mean, how, good, how bad would that be? And we, the, a couple of grandkids lived up the block. Uh, Joe and Becky used to bring the kids over, and the oldest kids that you see here were babies in those days. And it's California. We happen to have a house with a pool in it. I haven't figured out how that happened. It wasn't like we were getting paid a lot of money. It was just the way 
California was. But they'd come over, swim in the afternoon, right? So in the middle of all that, I get a call from a church in, uh, or from a friend of mine who had, was running a mission, a mission agency in Eastern Europe. He'd been traveling to Eastern Europe for many years. I'd been to Russia in 91, 92, 93, and then I'd go back to pastoring churches because uh, we had seven children, and I was trimming hedges and mowing lawns part-time and pastoring a church part-time, and it was just, uh, guys with big families know what that's like. It was just like, this is not working. If God wants me in global missions full-time someday, it'll be some other day. So now at this point, life is not bad. You know, God's taking care of us, and the church is growing. And so we get this call from this friend of mine and said, uh, I need uh, somebody to replace me. And it was a ministry overseeing Eastern Europe. And he said, I don't know many, that many guys who used to go to Russia and weren't afraid to go. Would you consider being director? And as I'm talking to him, I'm thinking, gosh, I hate to be the guy to break this up. I wonder if that's God. Then that weekend, we went to a Promise Keepers conference. Promise Keepers isn't doing so much anymore, but it was a men's con- big men's conference that was... Uh, that was November of, of 03, so we were in San Jose, California at a men's conference, and, and I remember as, they were, as we walked in, they handed out, and I still carried on my keychain, little links of a chain, you know, and, and uh, communicating the, the message to us that as, and they were speaking to men, but as men and women, as children, that when we talk about being servants of Christ and disciples of Christ, that we're really slaves. The biblical word is slaves. We've we don't use that term too often. It's not translated that, uh, that way because of some of the connotation with our own uh, ugly history with black slaves. As, they, as I held that little piece in my hand, the conference had barely started. I remember thinking, I've got, there's really no, no decision to make here. I may not want to pack up and move from California, but uh, God's calling us to this ministry because God had a plan and purpose, and I realized we had experience. Anyway, it's a long story. Bottom line is this. God's purpose, God's plan is always the best place to be, no matter how hard it might look. Even something as simple today as thinking, I wonder if I should consider going on a mission trip to Vietnam. If God wants you to go, it's the best place to be. We used to spend three to five months a year in Eastern Europe. Now we're spending a couple of months, uh, you know, three to five weeks a year in, in Vietnam and Cambodia. We'll get more to that. My point here is simply is this. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. Living in the midst of that, and you know what? You're never too old to be discovering something new. How many of you heard of Corey Ten Boom? Uh, her story coming out of uh, uh, her family's hiding the Jews and so forth. Her public ministry, speaking and sharing the gospel, began when she was in her late 60s. So none of us are too young or too old to not find a new chapter and a new purpose in our life. And I want to remind you this morning that God's purpose is to make disciples of all the nations. See, if God calls us and he calls us according to his purpose, he wants to connect our life with his highest purpose. If you can imagine that your life is like a giant gear, God wants to enmesh our life with his highest and advancing purpose, which is to make disciples of all the nations. As we sit here this morning, we can talk about unreached people groups, that there's more than 7,000, there's more than 3 billion people, about the great needs, and there's certainly great need to preach the gospel here in this country. You know, when, when I began ministry 40 years ago, you know, in those days, the statistics were at an average Sunday, 
more than 42% of the American population was in a church. The numbers now are in the low 20s. And that may be an exaggeration. As I said before, the definition of what it means to be actively involved in a church used to mean you were in church every Sunday if you weren't on vacation. And if you were in church, it meant you were, you know, if there was a midweek meeting or Sunday school, that you were there. Pastors I talk to these days say that that commitment in their churches, again, I don't know what it's like here, that commitment in their churches means people are in church a couple of times a month and they'll give a whole hour or hour and a half. God wants to connect your life and mine with his highest purpose is to make disciples of all the nations. Because, as I said, as we stand here this morning, as we sit here this morning, it's going to happen. One day, gathered around the throne will be people from every tongue, tribe, people, and language. And that's what God's doing. That's what he's at work doing. I was just reading about the International Mission Board just this past week, getting more familiar with the Lottie Moon offering. And in the sphere we're in, a lot of mission, there's a lot of less missionary sending than there used to be. And, uh, and numbers I saw is maybe about 20 or 25% of the missionary force was cut back, what, seven, eight years ago. To be cutting back for any of the denominational groups, for us to be cutting back in the missionaries we send in a season when, yeah, the hardest places are yet to, yet to go, but God wants to still reach every tongue, tribe, people, and language. And that's not going to happen if we aren't engaged in connecting our life with the highest purpose that He has for us. Because... And think about it. What is it like to go through life and I've been plenty, you know, in pastoral ministry I've been at plenty of people's deathbeds and a lot of funerals over the years. I've never met anybody who later in their life wished they would have worked more or made more money. I've met plenty of people who wish they'd spend more time with their family and that they listen to God more, and they look to the Lord in their life. God wants to connect your life and mine to His highest purpose. Now, there's a lot of ways that can be connected. I'm not saying here this morning that all of us are supposed to be sent out by IMB or some other mission agency to be missionaries. But all of us can find our place in the family business. We can take our place in connecting with what God's doing in the world. That can be praying for. Not just saying we're going to pray and then never praying but praying for the missionaries you support or missionaries you may come to know or works you may come to know. Last Sunday was one of the most meaningful things that happened last Sunday. Again, our mission agency, it's, I did this full-time. We're supported by individuals and churches. I drive for Uber and Lyft part-time to kind of help connect the dots. So last Sunday, I was in southern Illinois at a church that's become a partner church a little bit. They're at kind of one end of the spectrum. The pastor called me about a year ago, and he said, look, we... Uh, one of the elderly people in the church has died. They left us $800,000. Um, and we're so wrapped up in ourselves. This is a church that's 150 years old, 100, 160 years old. He said, we've never done anything with global missions, and now people are fighting about the money. But he said, I want somebody to come in and remind us that God has a command to take the gospel to the nation. So I'm working with their church, and their, um, I wrote a book, and they're studying my book. And we're kind of starting with them at the very beginning, which is, they're not thinking much even about reaching out their community, let alone the world. Well, anyway, one of the probably things that meant the most to me last weekend is I preached at the service and then updated them on our ministry because they're supporting us a little bit. And one of the ladies in the church said, Pastor Bill, I want you to go home and tell your wife, Sally, we pray for you and your wife by name 
every Sunday. And then they gather for Bible study. Now, it's a little church. It's a dying church. Uh, a lot of elderly folks. I think the, the average age must be 75 in that church. They get some younger folks, but uh, you know, it's declining. It's really sad. And maybe some will turn around. But he said, when we get, she said, when we gather for Bible study and we gather for worship, we pray for you and your wife and your ministry by name every Sunday and every week. Um, wow, that was, I started to cry. She told me that. Just, we've been going through some challenges with our work overseas. And, you know, it's up and down. And, you know, year in where we make the budget and all those different things. So encouraging. A genuine ministry of intercession, of praying, and praying particularly for people you support in other parts of the world, to pray for your pastor and his wife. Prayer can make such a difference, and particularly for the lost places in the world. So I'm not sitting here saying that everybody needs to be a missionary, but finding your place, whether it's giving, sending, or even going yourself. And I'm convinced that everybody ought to go at least on one short-term mission trip. Since 2004, Sally and I have been involved with probably taking 1,000 people on short-term mission trips. Uh, a lot of those to Russia and Eastern Europe. We were in China three years ago and then two years ago in Vietnam now, and we're connected, and we'll go more into the meeting later. We're connected with the ministry in Vietnam that I oversee. Uh, God is working there. And, uh, but going on a short-term mission trip can change your perspective on life, change your perspective on God's work. I can say this for sure. We would not be doing what we're doing today in missions full-time if we hadn't gone on our first short-term mission trip in 1990. John was 12. We had six kids. As we were Britain ready to go, we discovered we were number seven was on the way. And uh, uh, so we spent three weeks in Indonesia, a couple weeks back in the jungle, going where uh, visiting some missionaries that we supported. And at the time, it was like, again, I just turned 65, right? So... We had a lot of people my age in our church at that point when I was a young pastor and thought some of the older folks who had time and money could go on this trip. Nobody would go. We spent a whole year. Nobody would go. Nobody would go. So finally, we stepped up because our missionaries were saying, you've got to come and see the translation work you're doing. We were sending major support to them back in those days. And he said, please come. Looked around. There was nobody else to go. We said, okay, I guess it's us. So we bought tickets and went. I, uh, looking back, and even at the time, but even more so looking back, realized that was God's plan and God's purpose. We wouldn't be doing this if we hadn't gone on that first trip. The next year I was in Yugoslavia, and next year I was in Russia, and it was kind of off and running from there. My point is, still part of the context we're talking about this Vietnam mission trip, it's uh, come back at noon. We don't have any Vietnamese food. But come and check out what it might be. Or when another opportunity comes up, check it out. That can make a huge difference in your perspective on life as you connect your life to the Great Commission. Last thing, and then I want to just say a word about Vietnam. Whatever the call of God is on your life, God will empower you to live and walk it out. If it's to, uh, if it's to spend two weeks, which may seem like a mountaintop. Man, how could I ever go to... Like we just take people for Russia, and John and Nicole led a lot of those teams with us. We'd go to Russia, we'd go to Ukraine, we'd go to Slovakia, we'd go to Latvia, we'd work with public school kids, and we'd have people who'd come, and it was a huge deal to go for two weeks with us because it was a big thing. Live out of a suitcase and midnight sun and, you know, eight-hour time change and the flights and preparing for kids and then kids in class who you'd sometimes wonder, man, are they here? And, are they getting any of this? And then you'd find out they were. I remember one, you know, one little boy, was, our team was leaving one year, who pulled on the hem of... Uh, uh, one of the leaders, we were all at the train station getting ready to go, and 
And this little boy who I could have sworn wasn't listening all week because it seemed like he was always talking, right? And he pulled in the hand and, and, the, and the shirt of one of the leaders said, when they leave, is God leaving with them? And he says, no, no, he's not. Because he said, if God's leaving with them, I want to go with them. And this kid, and we weren't sure he was listening all week, but God was touching his life. So whatever God may be calling you to do, whether it's to give more to the offering that the pastor's been talking about or reach out locally with, with adopting one of the families or going with us to Vietnam or God will equip you and empower you to do that. But it's about taking steps of faith where you've not gone, knowing that God will meet you in that spot. We've been talking about Vietnam, and it's about time for me to wrap up here. This summer, we're going to be in Vietnam, and there's an option to go into Cambodia. I'm working in both countries. Pretty amazing how God has worked in putting us in both of those countries. Our son-in-law, our, you know, we have the five boys first. We had two daughters at the end. We kept going until we had daughters. Just kidding. No, yeah. Yeah, that's my wife saying, no way. It just kind of happened that way, you know. But we're thankful for that. Well, our, 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 our oldest daughter is married to a young man from Vietnam. I was researching it. I was writing a letter to supporters this last week. As we got called in to direct a ministry in Vietnam, it's a long story. The last couple of years was kind of blended together, and now I oversee that as well. Uh, there's 139 developing nations in the world that is struggle economically, for a whole variety of reasons. And, there ha- and there's medical missions working in a lot of those countries. But that God would, have from a church that I know well, that supports our ministry, who said, Pastor Bill, would you sit down and talk with these people? That it would be, of those 139, it would be Vietnam, where our son-in-law is from. And we were already working in Cambodia, and the two countries are side by side. God had his hand in us working in both those countries. Vietnam, 96 million, it's in the 1040 window, less than 2% Christian. Tremendous needs in that country. In Cambodia, where uh, we're going to do some youth ministry, and we'll talk more about that in the meeting. Tremendous needs in both countries. Both countries, less than 2% Christian, devastated by uh, the communist years in the 70s. Vietnam has recovered economically a bit quicker, but once you get in the rural areas, extremely poor, clean water needed. Uh, it's a whole host of physical and most of all spiritual needs that you can make a difference in. So I hope you'll come and check that out. Let me just say one last thing. You know, Carl Henry was a great evangelical scholar. He said this, you know, the God, good news is only, only good news if it gets there in time. I'll close with the story. Hudson Taylor was a pioneer missionary to China back in the mid-1800s. Uh, even in those days, people were going to the coastlines because they could get there easily, <laughs> easily, you know, a month on a ship. Um, but he pioneered with the, founded the China Inland Mission and went to the interiors. But he tells the story of uh, one young man that he was discipling who at one point or another as he was growing in his faith, he said, so how long have you had the gospel in your country? And he said he was kind of convicted by the question because he was from England. The gospel had been there for hundreds of years. And he said, have you ever had that question? I have that uh, this is the husband-wife question. When your wife asks you a question and kind of mumble the answer because you hope she doesn't hear the precise words, you know, it's like, like you go, you know. So he mumbles, you know, several hundreds of years. Man said, several hundreds of years. He said, my father died searching for the truth and he never find it. 
I never found it. He said, why did you not come sooner? And he said he resolved to live his life after that in such a way that no one could ever at least say to him, why didn't you come sooner? My point here simply today is both urge you to check out that Vietnam mission trip. I'm thankful that you want to kind of plug in with us because there's some tremendous opportunities to preach the gospel and partners with our, with our uh, the teams on the ground and, and making a difference in that country. But more than that, I'm going to challenge you this morning to find your place, to take your place in the family business. The family business has taken the gospel to the nations and he wants to connect your life and mine in ways that he isn't today in making a difference so that one day gather around the throne can people be people from every tongue and tribe and people and language. Can we pray together? Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy poured out in Jesus that we can gather at this season of the year and and we can celebrate that God is with us. Jesus is the Emmanuel. This came to give us life, to go to the cross so that we could have forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with the Father and and an open door to heaven one day when, when we go from this life to the next. But Father, we, we weep for those who don't have that message. And we pray, Father, simply that you would open our ears and the ears of our hearts to find our place in ever-increasing ways in helping to take the gospel to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. said that the gospel came to you on its way to somebody else. So as Bill is challenging us to uh, spread that gospel, let's, uh, let's make sure that we don't cut off that gospel message from reaching somebody else. Can, that we talk about it a lot and the reason is because we forget the mission is we get an opportunity to take people from the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light it's a really cool kind of secret ops kind of thing if you think about it from that perspective but if our perspective of the gospel is this just coming to Sunday service missing out on so much it's like having a smartphone but only utilizing the calculator we're not fully tapping into the power of God and what he can do in and through us if we just submit to him using us so as we wrap up this morning singing the song your name it's just a reminder that even with all of our efforts even with all of our plans all of our ideas Sing it.